There are things in life that you should doubt. For example, you should doubt diet pills. You should doubt quick fixes like shed 10 pounds in one day. Or we can fix all your credit problems with one phone call. You ought to doubt that, all right? You ought to doubt any ad claiming it's free. You should doubt anything beginning with just three easy steps. You should doubt Facebook statuses. You ought to doubt anything claiming to be the world's best, most, or fastest. You ought to doubt Bigfoot sightings. You ought to doubt pyramid schemes. You ought to doubt energy company telemarketers claiming to save you oodles of money. You ought to doubt fishing stories. Anybody guilty of fishing stories this morning? You ought to doubt doctors that say, this won't hurt. People that say, can I have a minute of your time? Or dentists that say, you'll only feel a pinch. (laughs) This is my favorite. By the way, the staff helped me with this. It's obvious they've been burned many times. This is my personal favorite. You ought to doubt oatmeal raisin cookies that you thought were chocolate chip. How many of you can relate to that? Yes, yes, yes. Now, this one did not come from me. You ought to doubt one-size-fits-all yoga pants. Okay, that, that came from a female member of our staff. Name will be withheld. You should doubt winning money from a prince in Saudi Arabia. Right? And then this one, I'm not quite sure what this means. It came, again, from another staff member. You ought to doubt the frozen section at Big Lots. So, not sure the story. that There's probably a story there entailed. So doubt has its place, right? The more startling a claim, the more our verification attendance ought to rise. Doubting thus is altogether not a bad thing. One writer says that it proves we are thinking. A famous pastor from the 19th century said that if a Christian, if a Christian claims he never doubts, quote, it is quite time for us to doubt him. So doubting is unquestionably human. What we do with them is what is important. And thus our signposts this morning. A street called faith moving in one direction and a street called doubt moving in the other. And though they often coexist, wrestling in our minds for dominance, the direction we choose will define what we become. So, here we are on Easter. The most important holiday for Christians. Celebrated around the world with songs and traditions and family gatherings and gifts I have happy memories of searching through my home on early Easter Sunday morning with great excitement to find that Easter basket filled with chocolate candy. I have equally great memories of going to my childhood uh, sunrise services at my church, especially given the fact that there were 
donuts and hot chocolate, the one time a year of which I consumed heartily without any shame. But Easter hangs on a very startling claim that Jesus Christ rose physically from the dead. My ancient history professor at Ohio State stated the objection to this matter-of-factly. He said, resurrections simply do not happen. Dead people coming back to life is completely outside our experience. Another skeptic named Dan Barker is a former preacher turned atheist. He now rejects the idea of miracles. He writes, If a miracle is some kind of violation, suspension, overriding or punctuation of natural law, then miracles cannot be historical. If a miracle did happen, it would pull the rug out of history. He concludes then that miracles must be considered more mythical than historical. So it should not surprise us that so many today find the claim of a resurrection beyond credibility. Now, the resurrection was also doubted by some of Jesus' own contemporaries. The claim was just as startling back then. One such doubter was even among his closest associates, the disciple named Thomas. Now, in the few accounts we have of Thomas, we discover that he was committed to Jesus. He was courageous. He was honest. He was not the kind to sort of nod and pretend to understand, ever have those people. They're nodding and pretending to understand, but you, you know they're not. Thomas wasn't like that. He was real and he was honest. In the hours following the crucifixion, overwhelmed with grief and dejection, Thomas pulled away even from the comfort of friendship. He was not with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to them after the resurrection. A story told in John's gospel. How did John describe this? Let me read it to you. It's in John's 20th chapter in verse 24. And again, the context, the story here is as the disciples are reporting to Thomas what they have seen. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of his nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now Thomas was not alone in his doubts. Look at the final chapter of Matthew, verses 16 and 17. Now, there's good reason to believe that this gathering included not only the closest workers of Jesus, here called the eleven, because Judas is gone, but a larger gathering of followers, but not all were convinced. Here's what verse 16 and 17 say. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. One more clue to this struggle of faith amongst first century people is found in Acts chapter 1. Acts is the story of the early church written by Luke. And 
in the opening of the book, in the prologue, Luke writes this. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now note the emphasis on Jesus giving convincing proofs. Why? Because here was a phenomena that stretched credibility. Here was something they had never experienced. Now the following verse says that he even ate with them. It's interesting. Eating with them is not insignificant. It's not just that Jesus had good manners and ate with them, had a meal with them. The claim here is that the resurrection was physical, not merely spiritual. He appeared as a person, not merely as a ghost-like vapor. He spoke with them, and the resurrection thus was not a private or hidden event. It meant the followers of Jesus... Because this event was public, because it was out in the open, it meant that the followers of Jesus could test this claim like they tested everything else through their five senses. What they touched, what they saw, what they heard, what they felt. Now, the fact that some doubted or the existing of convincing proofs might surprise us. Again, the fact that some doubted might surprise us. Because first century people are often painted as gullible, easily misinformed. But the idea of a resurrection was not something easily believed. Now, let me do a little bit of a history lesson with you if I could. Take a few moments with this. There's a writer... He's a New Testament scholar. He's one of the most widely respected New Testament scholars in our world today. His name is, he's British. His name is N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright has a remarkable grasp on the beliefs in that first century world. And in a short paper, he traces um, their understanding in the first century, their understanding of the afterlife and the resurrection. It's pretty interesting. Wright says in these centuries leading up to Jesus and at the time of Jesus, Wright says there was really a wide spectrum of beliefs, both in Judaism and in the Greco-Roman world. In the Greek and Roman world, some thought that death was simply the end. Most, however, pictured a continuing shadowy, shadowy existence in a place called Hades. Homer, the famous poet, the writer of the Iliad and the Odyssey, tells of a murky world full of witless, gibbering shadows that must drink sacrificial blood before they can think straight, let alone even talk. For Homer, Hades was no fun. The soul living in Hades for Homer, though, was not the real person. The true self remained lifeless in the ground. Now, later, for those who were influenced by Plato, 
death's release of the soul from its prison, the body, was cause for rejoicing since the body was so bad. Yet even in Homer's scheme, even in Homer's scheme, some heroes might make their way to the Elysian fields. The Elysian fields were a pain-free life on the western edge of the world, also called the Isles of the Blessed. For you moviegoers, think gladiator. That was where Maximus, remember, would awake. Now, even in some very rare cases, some would even make it to the homes of the gods themselves. Hercules, then the Greek rulers, then the Roman emperors were believed to be on that pathway. And then finally, in the Greek and Roman world, there were also another religion. There were mystery cults, mystery religions. They promised a blessed state in the present, which would, it hoped, continue after death. All, however, were agreed in this world. There was no resurrection. Death could not be reversed. Now, in Greek beliefs, the living could establish contact with the dead through various forms of necromancy. They might even have ghostly visits. But according to Wright, neither experience amounts to what pagan writers themselves referred to as a resurrection or a return to life, which they all denied. This was the view of the afterlife in the first century world of Jesus, except for Judaism. Judaism was different. Now, the idea of a resurrection in the sacred scriptures of the Jews, the Old Testament, appears very late. Much of the Old Testament assumes that the dead are in Sheol, which sometimes looks uncomfortably like Hades. Clear statements about the resurrection are rare in the Old Testament. The clearest passage and the most influential passage comes to us from Daniel chapter 12. Daniel was the uh, latest book written in the Old Testament. This passage, by the time we get to Jesus, was very important. It was often discussed. It was often debated what its meaning was. Daniel 12, 2 simply says this, and some of you who know the teachings of Jesus will find an echo here in the very teachings of Jesus in Matthew 25. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting shame and contempt. One of the parties that would have been debating this verse during the time of Jesus was the Sadducees. They denied a resurrection altogether. Other Jews who were influenced by the Greeks believed in a a disembodied immortality. In other words, a separation of the soul and body. But many others, such as the Pharisees, believed in some sort of resurrection at the end of history. Now, again, it's important here to understand the nature of resurrection. What is resurrection in relation to this? You see, resurrection is more than simply being raised to heaven or taken up in glory like the Old Testament saint Enoch. To talk about the destruction of the body 
and his continuing existence in some vague, impersonal form, lacking consciousness, is not to speak of a resurrection, but simply to speak of death itself. Resurrection is not simply death from another viewpoint. Resurrection is the reversal of death. It is death's cancellation. It is the destruction of its power. This is what the pagans denied. And all the Greek and Roman world denied except for the Jews. Now many Jews affirmed a resurrection, but it remained cloudy and inexact. And so here comes Jesus onto this scene and into this world. And the early Christian hope of a resurrection, it, it emerged from the soil of Judaism. But with the coming of Jesus, it came into much sharper focus. The first Christians believed in a resurrection. That is, the overcoming of death by the power of of God. Resurrection meant going through death and coming out in the other side in a new sort of bodily life. A bodily resurrection was very significant. Why? Because it meant that life after death did not mean then a ghost-like existence without personal consciousness. Rather, you continue to exist as a person defined by the boundaries of a new and a glorified body. More alive than ever. More awake than ever. As Roman 8 shows, Paul clearly believed that God would give new life to the mortal bodies of Christians. Look at Romans 8 verse 11. Moreover, if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through his spirit who lives in you. This was consistent with Jewish belief. It built on it and brought it into much sharper focus. So to sum it all up, this little history lesson, the Greeks denied the idea of a resurrection and the Jews only saw it dimly. So why is all this matter? What's the point? Why is it significant? Here's the reason. The thought of someone rising from the dead was as startling and unexpected then as it is today. The ancient world was not full of naive people. It's arrogant to assume that. But at the same time, into this world, this gospel message exploded all over the Greek world. The Roman Greek world. Further, the very first and second sermon preached to the Jews... Only 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus resulted in tens of thousands of believers and the birth of the early church. What was the gospel message that they preached that was exploding all over the world? 
Was the resurrection central to it? We find our answer to that critical question in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me begin at verse 3. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of which are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle for the way that I persecuted God's church. Notice the centrality of the resurrection to this message. Now, the wording here points to a very well-established tradition that came together in just a few decades after Jesus. The historicity of 1 Corinthians is widely accepted, even by skeptical scholars. It was written only about 25 years after Jesus died. Paul says, I I passed on to you what was most important. What was most important? That Christ died for our sins. That he was buried, meaning he was not half dead. He was dead. And he was raised on the third day. Paul knew that such a miracle was bound to create doubt and skepticism. And so Paul lists these eyewitnesses. Peter. Peter, who tradition tells us was crucified upside down, refusing to deny that he had seen Jesus risen. It includes the twelve. Now that Matthias has replaced Judas, and part of the criteria for Matthias is that he was an eyewitness of the resurrection. Five hundred followers, why does Paul say, at one time? At one time suggests that so many So many in one gathering could not be fooled by trickery or by an hallucination. And then just to tag on to it, Paul says, Oh, by the way, most are still alive. Which means you can go talk to them and go check it out for yourselves. James, the brother of Jesus, who was once a skeptic. And finally, Paul himself, once a terrible persecutor of the church. What can account for the conversion of James? What can account for the preaching of the twelve? What can account for the conversion of Paul? What can account for the resurrection appearances? The tens of thousands of believers in the ancient world believing in Jesus without a firm pre-existing belief in such a remarkable event. What can account for their conversion to a blue-collar, uneducated preacher from the hill country of Palestine? Unless, unless there was evidence of the empty tomb that the early followers proclaimed. What can account for the massive and enduring shift in people's beliefs following the resurrection of Jesus? Could it be that the most plausible theory is that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead? Now, I would encourage you to research this For yourself. Because if it's true, then we can say undoubtedly, God has broken through to our world. 
We may still have nagging doubts, but we can begin to turn our head and our hearts down the street called faith. No. No, God has not written a message in the sky such as the critics demand. Nor does God show up in the form of lightning when critics say, kill me on the spot, as if somehow that raw exercise of power would prove that God exists. Actually, God has done us one better than that. He surprised us by becoming like us. And he defeated the age-old enemy that we can never escape. The enemy that hammers all of our hopes and dreams. The enemy of death. So you see, in the end here, we must all do something with this. We must all make our decision to accept or reject him. Why, you ask that question. Why must I make a decision about it? There are many facts from history that I don't need a personal response to. Julius Caesar lived around the same time. I don't need some personal direction in relation to Julius Caesar. Here is why. Here is why. The resurrection of Jesus, through it, God communicates something personal to you. He is saying something very personal to you because God at his core is very relational. First, God communicates his love by saying in John's gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. He promises life with him in the unending age to come. Why? Because he wants you to be with him. That's why. He wants you to be with him. We as Christians sometimes talk about this like in uh, legal language, or we talk about it in, we have this position before God. and Sometimes we talk about it in an academic sense. The bottom line is, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit want to hang out with you and be with you. They are inviting you into your home. God has a place reserved with your name on it. He wants to be with you because he likes you. You see, to reject him is to reject that life. Life with God in the age to come is not an entitlement simply for living and dying on this earth. Over and over, the Bible says, if left to ourselves, we will naturally walk away from God. Therefore, a decision is always required to choose God and the life he has for us. And secondly, so one, one, why must we make a decision? Because God has communicated his love to us. And then also, secondly, because God communicates his justice through the resurrection. In Acts 17.31, the writer says that through the resurrection, God has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead, Jesus. And therefore, Jesus has the authority to judge the world. Jesus has this authority because he lived a pure and perfect life without sin. Thus, he is the standard by which we will all be judged. Your life will not be judged at the end. In other words here, your life will not be judged 
at the end, compared to those who are three or four rungs below you on the ladder of morality. Your life will be judged in comparison to Jesus, who showed us perfect humanity. Now, you might think, sitting here today, you might think that morally, you stand on a very high mountain, high above all the riffraff in the valley below you. But whether you are on a high mountain or in the valley, both are light years away from touching the stars. The distance between the mountain and the valley is barely traceable compared to the distance between heaven and earth. It means we will all day, this verse in Acts 17, we will all day, one day, stand before Jesus as our judge. And the primary question he will ask you is not how moral you were, Or how much do-gooding is on your resume? Or did you live a a clean, self-respecting, middle-class life? The primary question he will ask you is, what did you do with me? What did you do with me? Did you accept my claims? Did you transfer your trust from things or from other people to me? Did you invite me to forgive your sins based on what I accomplished through the cross and the resurrection? Now, please don't misunderstand me. Good works and good character will abound for the authentic Christian. But they will never be the bargaining chip through which I compensate for my deep flaws and my deep sinfulness. My good works will never Earn me salvation. Because. Because of his love for you. Number one. Again. Why must we make a decision? His love. And number two. We're accountable to him. He will be our judge. The one who has made us. And this is why the claim of the resurrection requires that we make some decision about Jesus. To accept him or reject him. To do nothing. Is not an option. To do nothing is to remain in a position of self-reliance, the same as rejecting him. To accept him, according to the Bible, is to reunite with the one who made you for relationship with him. It is a homecoming of sorts. It is to be made alive again. It is to wake up to who you truly are. And it is to wake up To the purpose for which you've been created. This is choosing faith. Now working through doubts is really close to me. Really close to me. I have wrestled with doubts for my entire Christian experience. I'm predisposed to be like Thomas. To doubt, to question. And frankly, for some reason, I find it just difficult to trust. I find it challenging to believe in something that I I have not directly experienced. You know, years ago, I used to long for some tangible evidence so I could erase my doubts. I, I kept searching for miracles. I remember as a little boy thinking, if I could only live during the days of Jesus, that, that would have erased all my doubts if I could have done that. And I can be like Thomas. I can swell up with courage in one moment, expressing unconditional loyalty, and I can wilt in the next when trouble actually comes. You know, returning to Thomas for a moment, 
if we read on in that chapter 20, Thomas had his encounter with Jesus and Jesus met him in his doubts and Jesus condescended and met his demands. He invited Thomas to put his hands in his wounds. Thomas did so and he cried out the most simple confession of faith. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to Thomas something profound. Because you have seen me, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That was my challenge. And so I've stood. I've stood many times at this crossroads. Over some time, I turned my doubt into research and into study and into honest examination and trying the best I could to determine I will go wherever the evidence takes me, even if I do not like the outcome. And the more I searched, the more evidence for Christ and his resurrection I found, it just began to layer on top of one another like a big cake. And though here I am alive in 2017, in my imagination, because I believe this event occurred, I go back 2,000 years in my mind's eye, and I run my fingers along that wooden cross on which Jesus died. And I gaze at the opening, I stare at the opening of the empty tomb, and I hear that voice that's familiar. Maybe it takes a little while, but it's familiar just as Mary experienced. And the resurrection continues to quiet my doubts. You see, the signpost really bears just a little bit more explanation, if I could. Because as we've learned today, doubt is not necessarily the opposite of faith. We have seen how doubt can strengthen our faith, and doubt means we're thinking. But there's another kind of doubt that takes us away from faith. It's called unbelief. Sometimes the Bible calls this doubt. Sometimes it just uses the word unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are different. There's a difference. Doubt says... Doubt says, I can't believe or I'm having trouble believing. Unbelief says, I won't believe. Doubt says, or doubt is honest. It's searching. I'll go where the facts take me. Unbelief is stubborn. Unbelief is obstinate. Doubt works through faith and finds answers that are reasonable and satisfying. Unbelief makes an advanced decision against faith and pushes it away at all costs. Doubt, unbelief, they're different. Now, I was never an all-out skeptic. Nor did I have the credentials of someone by the name you may have heard of whose name is Simon Greenleaf. It's kind of a funny name, isn't it? Sounds like an Indian name. Simon Greenleaf is known as one of our country's greatest legal minds. He helped put Harvard Law School on the map 
in the early part of the 19th century. His writing on the laws of evidence have shaped and continue to shape our legal thought today, according to what I read. He was an atheist at one time. He believed the resurrection of Jesus a legend until he examined it for himself. Applying his own rules of evidence to the facts, Greenleaf arrived at his verdict. The resurrection of Jesus was the best explanation for everything that took place following the crucifixion. Greenleaf was willing to go where the facts led him. He turned from his atheism and became a follower of Jesus. How about you this morning, on this Easter morning? How about you? What would you do? Which pathway are you on? Faith? Or can I more clearly say unbelief? Will you go where the truth leads you? Will you work through your doubts to arrive at a faith that is real, a faith that is yours, and a faith that is not somebody else's? That's the kind of faith that will last through anything. That's the kind of faith that can take you home to where you belong, to the reason that you've been created, resting in the embrace of your Father. Pray with me. Father, this morning, I thank you for every friend, every individual that's decided to celebrate Easter with us this morning. And Father, we come from many different places and many different backgrounds. Father, some of us have already come to the same conclusion that you rose from the dead and have placed their faith in you, Lord. Others are sort of in an in-between spot. They're not quite sure they've done that. And then, Father, others here this morning have come with maybe never a close look or understanding of how significant this day actually is. Something beyond all the traditions and Easter bunnies and candy and all those things. Father, a day where history changed, a day where we still, our very calendar, Lord, is affected by it. A day that has changed the trajectory of millions of lives, tens of millions of lives. Father, will you help each and every one of us come to our understanding of what we believe about what took place this day. And Father, I pray for those that maybe have not yet believed. That Father, you would show yourself to them. I pray for their hearts that they'd be willing to go wherever truth takes them. That, Father, they too, I believe, might discover the beauty and the glory and the power of your resurrection and what it means to us, the future hope that we have because of it. It's through Christ that we pray for his glory. Amen.